Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from TSPN, that's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is Thursday, May 31st, 2012. Another month goes down. Uh, this is episode 912 of the Survival Podcast, and I am going to do a show today called Two Possible Futures Over the Next Few Years, and it has absolutely nothing to do with the presidential election, at least not really. And uh, I'm going to tell you where I think we're headed economically today and how we can have these two different futures. And the good news is one sucks, one doesn't suck, and it's your choice which one of them you participate in, uh, at least to a large degree. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, MERS Radio at MERS-Radio.com. That's Rob Belleville's company there. If you have any questions about MERS, get in touch with him because he's a real person that will actually really help you. Uh, I, I also want to tell you, you know, I was, I was visiting with a friend and his new father-in-law uh, at a bar here in uh, Hot Springs earlier this week. And he's putting together kind of a really cool little homestead-type operation, and he's worried about security. And when I explained to him that you could put these motion detectors out on your property and that that would tell you where people were, you could then communicate with other members of your family or your group with the detectors continuing to send information about the movements of others, and that if you got creative and threw some cameras into the mix, you could put together a really sophisticated security system uh, and and do it in a fairly low-tech, easy-to-manage to way, he was pretty blown away by it. And I think that most people really don't get how powerful that kind of thing can be. So check out MERS Radio and realize it's more than just secondary radio. It's also security and communications in one. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. The other guys I call the original survival podcast sponsor because they went first. They were the first company to step up and sponsor us, and that was a long time ago. That's almost four years now that this company's been supporting the show, supporting our efforts, and I think that is just awesome. So uh, check them out, man. And anything you can think of you need for your prepping needs, you'll probably find it at Safe Castle. And if, if you've decided with all these tornadoes and everything you'd like a hardened shelter so that you uh, you don't you know lose everything if you happen to get hit by a really severe weather event, check out their hardened shelters, too. You can link over to their shelter site from from uh, Prepare.pro is actually their website. Best way to get there, though, to their website, to uh, MERS Radio, to all of our sponsors, is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on their banners in the right-hand margin. And that way you know you're dealing with somebody that I've actually vetted and I actually am giving my personal endorsement to. All right, with that, uh, next up, make sure you connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And on YouTube, the big news today isn't even on my channel. It's on Dean Brock's channel and her video that won If I Wanted to Save America. I put it out on Facebook, I put it out on Twitter, uh, and I put it out on the blog today already. And that's it. That's that's what I can do now. I've shared it with all of you guys. Now it's up to you. Um, I don't think I've ever actually really, really asked you guys ever to like to take one piece of my content and really share it with everybody. Uh, I appreciate it when you do. I like it when you do. I try to let it occur as organically as possible. But I think this video is special. I think it can reach a lot of hearts and minds with the preparedness message. 
and uh, do so in a very sane, logical way, unlike you know the networks do with their doomsday crap and all this other stuff. So uh, check it, check it out if you haven't seen it yet. It's an amazing job she did on the video, and please share it. I don't think that uh, that it would really is a political thing either. I think that no matter what side of the aisle you identify with, this is more about the belief in what actually works for America as citizens. It's not about the government. It's about the people. So please share that today. Uh, with that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up. I'm going to leave it there. I am going to remind you guys, call in for episode 1000, though. Uh, the number to call for episode 1000 is not the think line for the call-in shows. It's got its own number, 866-691-5353. Again, 866 866- 691-5353. And listen to like the one-year anniversary show if you want to get an idea for what kind of call to make. Um, but I want a lot of calls. We're getting some, but not the avalanche I expected. I know we're still a long way off. We're like 98 episodes away. or No, yeah, 88 episodes away. So we're several months away yet. But let's, let's not wait until the last minute, guys. Get your calls in. Because uh, I think I'm going to have a lot of work to do to put that show together just because of the volume of it. So the earlier they come in, the sooner I can start piecing them all together. All right, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. I, this is what I'm talking about when I talk about our future over the next few years. Uh, and, and I'm going to say this could be anywhere from four to ten years is actually what I think I'm going to modify my title in the, in the blog show notes right now. Uh, it could even be four to twelve years. I don't know exactly when all of this stuff's going to go off the rails. And I don't know exactly what it's going to look like when it goes off the rails. I'm not one of these people that are going to come here and tell you to your face that when the when the dollar collapses in one form or another, that it's going to be Mad Max Road Warrior. It, it, it could be in some areas. It may not be quite that anywhere. It could be that in a lot of places. We really don't know exactly how that part's going to play out. Um, we also don't know exactly when this stuff's going to happen. People that have been saying it's going to happen by this year have been doing that for a very damn long time, and all they do is keep kicking the can. They keep kicking the can. It, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be 2012, man. Uh, no, uh, no I, I said it could be. Now I'm saying it's like 2014. Now, and 2014 comes in, and we're still like you know held together in one piece. Then they'll say, oh, well, it's going to be 2016. Because here's the reality. Those people aren't bad people and they're doing the best they can with their information, they just feel compelled to put a deadline on it, and they're making their best guess. And the system has managed to survive past a lot of those guesses. Uh, so I believe that I'm probably no better at guessing than they are, and I can be honest with you and tell you that I don't know exactly when the whole thing will fall apart, but I also know that at some point it has to. And I'd like to just you know, give you a little bit on the numbers here, I don't like to make my show so much about numbers where they become boring and sound like a classroom. But we do need, if you want to you know, face the debt problem, then we need to know the number. And the number right now is $15.7 trillion. $15.7 trillion in U.S. national debt. Uh, the federal budget spending this year so far, $3.6 trillion in climbing. I'm getting these numbers from usdebtclock.org. You can go there yourself and look, and I'll tell you that the numbers will be bigger by the time you get there. Uh, debt per taxpayer is $138,000. So if you're actually a taxpayer, that's your share of this debt. You're not going to pay it. So it's going to be handed down to the next generation if the system survives long enough to do that. Um, and I think there's another piece of debt here that people don't really understand. The total debt. 
See, the U.S. national debt, that's just what the government owes at the federal level. When we look at all the debt, okay, all the debt, period, and this means your debt, my debt, the state's debts, the county's debts, um, I'm talking every freaking debt there is, all money owed in the United States today. Let me give you this number, $57.5 trillion. You want to you hear that again? $57.5 trillion in debt. And what we need to understand about this, this debt system is the debt is how the money's created in this, uh, this economy. And I, I won't go deep into that. Just if you haven't heard it before, you can go look, listen to some of my other shows about it. Uh, or you can, I'll put a good YouTube video up today that explains it that I did. Um, and you can learn more. But just understand that every dollar in your hand is actually created by debt. It's a child of a debt instrument. And that means as debt begins to collapse, currency begins to collapse. The, the two are completely connected with each other. And that if one of the major players in this debt pyramid defaults, the whole thing starts to come apart. Because each debt is leveraged off another debt. So the bigger the debt gets, it's like the bigger the building gets with a potential for an earthquake. And the bigger the collapse. And, and we have a pretty big building when we're looking at $15 trillion owed by the federal government, which by the way is us. And then a total debt burden on the whole nation of $57 trillion. No, no one ever talks about that because they'll say, well, you know, that, that debt's not really all that bad. I mean, a lot of people, that debt's, you know, that's the, you know, if you add up all the mortgages, just the mortgages on houses alone, and that's at least backed by real property. And yes, but the mortgage itself created the money. When the person defaults on the mortgage, the money that was created by the mortgage basically vanishes because it's on the bank's books as an asset leveraging other debts. And now it's no longer an asset because there's no cash flow out of it and there's no hope of repayment. And then there's just a piece of dirt sitting there. An overvalued piece of dirt and sticks and wood and concrete that I now have to find somebody else to buy. And if I can't find somebody else to buy it, the money is truly imploded at the bank level. That's what happened with the housing crisis. That's, that's exactly what, what was the, 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 uh, the results anyway. When, when a few people defaulted, it wasn't a big deal because they could be covered. But when a lot of people defaulted, not only did that cause an in, you know, a collapse inward on the banking system, but then the damage that did to the housing market caused many other people who wouldn't have defaulted to have to default because that affected the economy. That cost jobs. Now people can't pay their bills. And as each, you know, segment of society began to abandon housing and Tell the bank, keep it. It's not worth what you say I owe on it. Screw you. As that happened, that created more. It was a cascading effect. And in some ways, we can look at what the government did with stepping in and bailing out the financial institutions of, of stopping that spiral. I'm not saying it was the right way to stop the spiral, but it did at least slow it down. There was probably, definitely better ways to do it, but that that's where we ended up. Now, on the debt... This is what I want you to really take in. I'm going to do a little history lesson here. I'm just going to look at 10-year increments because they're easy to break up, and it's, it starts to put a picture together for you of the money. And you'll notice that whether we had a Republican in office or a Democrat in office, it didn't matter. The debt continued to go up, and it, it continued to go up exponentially. So from 1980 to 1990, we went from just under a trillion. We were $0.9 trillion in debt. In 1980. Now think about this. People were concerned about the debt in 1980. They were saying there's too much of it. We have a trillion dollars in debt. How are we going to pay this? But by 1990, when we had George Bush uh, Sr., right? 3.4 trillion. 
So Reagan and Bush grew the debt from a trillion dollars to 3.4 trillion. Then uh, we had some Bush two action going on in Bill Clinton action. Remember Bill Clinton, good for the economy, you know, responsible spending, all that good stuff. So we went from about three trillion uh, with Clinton to and, and a little bit of Bush, right? 5.8. So it basically doubled. The debt doubled from 1990. To, 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 the, uh, to 2000, the debt doubled, $5.7 trillion. Um, so right, right around $3 to $6 trillion, so almost a double. Uh, Reagan tripled the debt. Reagan and Bush, uh, the, so they tripled it. But when we got into that bigger number, then we had the Internet prosperity and some tax money coming in. We were able to hold the debt back from quite you know doubling again. But then... Then um, things started to get kind of shaky, and the government did what the government always does. They used money they didn't have to pay for things we didn't need. And from 2000 to 2010, the debt went from $5.7 trillion, let's call it $6 trillion, to $14 trillion. So it more than doubled. It more than doubled. Now, what you're seeing here, and this is, this is the pe part people struggle with, is that In 1966, for instance, we owed about three-tenths three of a trillion, which is another way of saying $300 billion. In 2010, the interest on our debt was higher than what we owed in the 1960s. The interest starts to run away. Right now, we are paying more for interest on the debt than we are for just about any of the major departments of government other than Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the Department of Defense. There's actually not a single department of government that exceeds what we're spending in interest on the debt. Homeland Security, that giant monstrosity of government, doesn't even come close to costing us what the interest on our debt costs. Department of Education... Department of Home, Homeland Security put together still doesn't add up to it. I mean, you really have to start thinking about the, this interest component at this point. So let me give you some hard numbers from 2010. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read. Uh, this is exactly what the cost of doing business was for these five departments of government in 2010. The Department of Justice cost us 23 billion dollars. We we spent on the DOJ. Department of Homeland Security cost us $46 billion. The Department of Education also cost us right at $46 billion. Again, these are real numbers from 2010. The Department of Health and Human Services cost us $76 billion. And the Department of Energy cost us $26 billion. That means those five big monstrosities of government cost us around $217 billion. Let's call it $220 billion. That's a, that's a lot of, that's a lot of spending. I'm sure there's some waste in there. I'm sure we can all agree on that. But what do you think our interest on our debt was in 2010? Just the interest. $414 billion. $414 billion we paid for interest on debt. So we're, we're hitting that point. You know, when you talk to a retirement planner and he says, like, you know, if you get seven or 10 or 12 percent interest, this is how your money grows and you're contributing a little bit and you're doing a hundred dollars a month or whatever. And you know, you, you know, you're all the way up to 50. It doesn't look that impressive. And then 50, the line on the graph starts to, to go away a little bit and go up. 
and then like at 60 it like it goes into this this huge hockey stick and you know just around that time you're 60 70 years old and ready to retire you're supposed to have all this money because all that interest is compounded and the real compounding is towards the end okay it works like that with debt too when you keep borrowing eventually the debt hockey sticks and that's exactly what has happened and it is happening uh, with with the current economy of the United States and the debt load. So if we look at it that way, we realize that we're at a point where sooner or later we just we just can't fix that anymore. And one of the things we have to, to look at right now, though, is, well, then why are people running to the dollar? And isn't that good? If investors and investors right now, man, they're bailing out of the euro, they're running to the freaking dollar. They're, they're, they're bailing out of a lot of different markets and running to the dollar right now. I'll tell you why that's bad. Because it doesn't change anything I've already told you. It doesn't change how screwed up the economy is. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't even take into account anything about Social Security, Medicaid, and the burden, the $50 trillion hold that's there uh, between now and 2050. It doesn't take any of that into, you know, it doesn't change any of that. It's still the case. But the, the really bad thing about it is, why? Are they running to the dollar? And the answer is because there is no place else to go. You can put your money in gold and silver right now, but if you're putting a lot of money in gold and silver right now and you might need it in the short term, you're, you're risking the short-term fluctuations of a highly volatile market. Um, and, and then think about this. Right now, a dollar is, is uh, it, 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 about a dollar 25 in a year. 1.25 euros equals one U.S. dollar. So the euro is still higher than the dollar. Greece is on the verge of complete collapse. Greece is on the verge of telling the EU, screw you. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. We're going we're gonna to go back to our own currency. We're going to leave the euro. Iceland already did it. Um, there's rumblings, of course, in Spain and Italy now because they're seeing that if it's a solution. The euro might very well collapse, completely collapse long before the dollar. So this is the bad part then. If the dollar fails, where would you go currency-wise? And what the market is seeming to tell us right now is, we don't know. That's that's That makes the situation worse. Because it puts us in a situation where it's not a U.S. collapse, it's a global collapse. So the rest of the world's not stupid, and they're, they're really making moves to, to decouple themselves. We have quite a few nations that are now engaged in international trade where they're not using the dollar. And, and this is something else that people don't understand. And it's an unfair advantage that America has weaseled our way into in the world. And this is not anti-American to say this. This is just the truth. If two countries want to, let's say, uh, I don't know, let's say that uh, Brazil wants to sell oil, because they actually have quite a bit of oil, and they want to sell oil to France, okay, France is, is you know, in theory anyway, required to convert their euros into um, dollars and pay the uh, Brazilians in dollars, who then will convert back to their currency. But the actual exchange is done in dollars. And we're the maker of dollars, therefore we have a, a trade advantage against everybody uh, in international trade from a monetary standpoint. It doesn't fix our trade deficits, which are a completely different issue. Um, so... Right now, there's countries that are saying, you know what, yeah, we'll take your, you know, we'll take whatever your currency is, and we'll just convert it to ours. We don't need this dollar thing anymore. So they're trying to get away from it because they know that if we tank, they tank. And the whole goal right now seems to honestly be 
prop it up until we can get ourselves away from this sh this sinking ship. The rats are, are bailing off the ship, guys. Because if, when the ship actually sinks, it can suck you under with it, even if you're off the boat. So they're like, let's keep it floating long enough to get the lifeboats over to China. And, and, and a lot of the wealthiest people in the world have done just that. So I don't want to spend the whole show telling you how bad it is, because I'm a solutions guy, right? But I, I do want to wake people up today that maybe think, like, it's all going to be okay. It, it's, it's not all going to be okay. We can all be okay. But it has to fall apart. The, the, the numbers don't, don't show any other option. And let's look at how would a publicly traded company solve this problem. Well, a publicly traded company would have done what I'm about to describe long ago is an attempt to stave off bankruptcy. And it would have never gotten this far. But a government can do things a company can't. But basically what a company does when its stock begins to be devalued because it, it, it's just failing It, but if it's still got functionality, it's still working, it's it, it's still moving forward. Whatever widget they make or service they provide, they can still provide. They still have customers, they still have cash flow, so they're, they're holding on. What they'll usually do if they're, if they're a publicly traded company is what's called a reverse stock split, which is a bad thing for the investor. It's a way of giving your investors the shaft and telling them you're doing a good thing for them. So reverse split to make the numbers really easy. Let's say my stock had fallen to a dollar. And the big problem for a company when they hit a dollar and start to go below a dollar for very long is they'll get delisted from the major exchanges, okay? They'll get pushed over to what they call the over-the-counter big board, uh, which is the penny stock uh, casino. No one wants to be in there. Nobody wants to be in there. So what they'll do is they'll say, we have to somehow push the value of the stock back up to $10. So what they'll do is they'll basically collapse the shares, So let's say, and just being totally ridiculous, but to keep the numbers understandable, there were 10,000 shares of a stock. The company was now valued at uh, $10,000 because each share was worth a dollar. The company will simply combine shares from units of 10 to units of 1. So now, instead of 10,000 shares at a dollar, there's 1,000 shares at $10. So your investor technically didn't lose anything because... He still has a stock valued at $10. Okay. He still has the same percent of ownership in the company because the shares were collapsed equally onto themselves. But what is rapidly going to happen is that stock price will usually begin to fall again unless the company has taken major corrective action and has stabilized and, and, and returned to business as, as normal. Well, a country can't quite do that. That would be a direct deflation. Uh, collapsing the currency supply onto itself, and that has huge problems of its own. Uh, you could say you're strengthening your currency, but just like the collapsed stock, if the underlying performance isn't there, it doesn't work, and it just continues to devalue. So what you have to do is revalue the currency or rebase the currency. Change what the currency is based on from whatever it's based on today to being based on something else tomorrow that you have in abundance so you can make lots of currency and use the new, hopefully stronger currency to, to pay down and devalue the old debt. So what would you use to do that, folks? What does the United States have, at least if we are led, if we're led to believe about it is true? in abundance, is gold. In spite of the fact that the dollar is not backed by gold, we have a buttload of gold, unless it's gone. And I know there's conspiracy theorists that think it's gone, but let's face it the other way around. They borrow trillions of dollars. They can lay up a trillion dollars worth of gold if they wanted to tomorrow morning. 
right? They can they can put the gold there if they want to. Uh, in the past, when they when they wanted gold, they just took it away from people. They bought it from them with money they printed out of thin air, right? So there's lots of ways to do that. So if we go back to a gold standard, a lot of people think that's like really a great thing. But what happens to you is you don't understand that you're not you're not the bank. You're the shareholder. Your shares are denominated in dollars. And if you have $100,000 in the bank and they switch back to a gold standard, if there is any cash left, if they don't go to a totally cashless system, which is their goal as well, with a little paper they give you little pictures on it, it'll change the way it looks a little bit. It might say something different on it. But, you know, said 20 before, says 20 now. But if it's backed by gold, how do I make that work as a, as a, as a country? When I don't have enough gold to compensate for all the money that's in circulation, I set the value of the weights and measures to my advantage. See, in the, in the, in the Constitution, Congress, and, and therefore now, unfortunately, the Federal Reserve, would have the power to do that because it says it right there, set the value of weights and measures. Well, what that means is I could say that, um, I don't know, an ounce of gold is $10,000 in the new currency. You think I can't do it, but I can, especially if I go to a gold-backed currency. And I can do it with ratios, I can do it straight, I can do it any way I want to, but I can basically say for each uh, $10,000, the United States will now offer up an ounce of gold, which means what happened to the value of the cash for you, the shareholder? It's been devalued by, what, 80%? Because gold's trading right now at like 1600 bucks an ounce? Do you understand that they could do that? And it actually is a solution in their minds. That's one way they could do this. But in the end, one way or another, they have to reset the game. They can't just let this thing keep running. Now, again, I, I don't know when all this happens. Jim Rogers was just on today saying that uh, the next major economic uh, collapse in America, and, and, and economic woes is more accurate than collapse, I guess, is 2013. The 2013 is going to be a really bad year. That all this spending leading up to the election, doesn't matter which one wins, at that point the MasterCard bill comes due, uh, and everybody that ran up the tab is going, not me. And uh, so, and it's just a, a basic cycle that the U.S. goes through uh, through prosperity and, and recession about every six years, and and that's what he's saying is actually this has been a rather good time since the recession. Uh, I don't know how he figures that. I usually like what he has to say, but I I guess he's saying at least the stock market went back up, and, and investors feel better about their 401ks, and there is commerce and business going on, and the whole thing didn't fall apart, And then, but it was all propped up in 2013. The other side. Again, I don't know. But what I really want to talk to you guys about today is what your two possible futures with this are. There, there's one that I won't spend much time on because it's pretty dark and bleak, and I would think that most people wouldn't choose it for themselves, and it is a choice at this point. The first one is pretend that this isn't happening. Pretend that it's just not a big deal, especially if you still have a good job. Leave all your money in your 401k and don't worry about it. Dollar cost averaging will fix everything. Don't worry about storing up any food. Don't worry about learning how to feed yourself. Don't worry about developing your skill set. Continue to go to the movies. Go to McDonald's. Don't worry about being in any way or any form active in your community, or active politically, whatever way that you would choose to be active, don't do any of it. Just continue on. 
Uh, those that aren't that think they're politically active because you tweet a bunch of shit and put a bunch of shit on Facebook about how the other side is wrong, keep doing that. Don't worry about actually worrying about how to fix it. Just worry about showing everything that the other side does is wrong. Remain closed-minded and blind and just hope it all works out. This is what's going to happen to people that do that, on, at least on some level. At some point, when this thing blows up in, in, in our faces... The value of the money that you're holding in everything that you have denominated in dollars that's not actually owned. So your house can be an extreme asset at this point, but if you owe a shitload of money on it and that's all debt and you can't pay it, that then you've got the same problem here. The, the value of the money goes way, way down, but you don't get more of it. That, that That's what's going to happen. This, this concept that, well, if I'm holding my house and the value of the money drops, then the it'll be easier to get money, and therefore I can use the new money to pay off the old debt, and, and by, by borrowing a lot of money, I win. There could be some truth to that for a while. As long as you don't owe a crap load of money, as long as you owe money that you can pay off, uh, if you choose to, uh, in an accelerated rate. I mean, to be honest, in some ways, you're almost dumb not to buy a house right now. Freaking, I, I just talked to somebody that had an interest rate of like 2.9% on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. Um, if you had the cash to pay for the house, to think that the cash wouldn't be devalued by 2.9% over 30 years, it's just, I mean, it's almost... It doesn't almost doesn't make any sense to not use somebody else's money to buy real property right now, but you got to be sensible with that. And you also have to be thinking about it this way. That house needs to be where you want to live for the next 30 to 50 years. And, and we don't buy houses thinking that way anymore. When our grandparents bought a house, they looked at the house and said, it's nice. I can see myself raising a family here and staying here And when I'm old and sitting in a rocking chair, sitting with my grandkids on that porch, they thought that way. And they made different decisions than we do today just from changing the way they think. I'm not telling you what to decide. I'm telling you what to think before you decide so you can make a better decision based on your own choices. So if we if we continue with this, we continue to buy McMansions, right? Or people continue to buy houses in areas they know they really don't want to be in. And then when there's a, when there's hard times, it's much easier to walk away. And it, it, it actually, in some ways, is easier to walk away than to stay. And sometimes you might have to run away. So the, the future for the person that ignores this is, is going to be a really harsh reality when one reality sets in. And this is, this is the really bad part. The ship will have completely sailed. Right now, like, it's already happened, but there's so much time in my view. Right. Even if there's two years, that's a lot of time to get your stuff together. And I think there's more than that personally. But again, I, I don't forecast these things. I just guess. Um, but when when that happens and it's like really obvious that it's too late, most people will continue to deny it and continue to deny it. And they'll just close their eyes and close their ears. And the more they've been asleep, the stronger they'll try to stay asleep and the more that they're eventually going to get hurt. And I do think we'll see riots in cities. I, you know, I, I tell you not to, the roving horde thing and all. Just, the, listen, the powers that be will come in and squash that crap. They really will. They'll use it as an excuse to squash you too. So be, you know, be on the lookout for that. But there will be places where it'll blow up. 
And they'll be pretty damn busy dealing with it. If you think about this, Dallas-Fort Worth has 6 million people plus in it. Houston, I think, has 4 or 5 million people. New York City, 12. Los Angeles is like 4 million or something like that. You know? Um, Atlanta, I don't know. It's, it's well over a million. I, you know, um, Baltimore, Maryland. Boston, Massachusetts. Providence, Rhode Island. Chicago, Illinois. Jacksonville, Florida. Tampa, Florida. Miami, Florida. I'm not targeting cities here or anything and saying this is where it's going to happen. I'm just saying, just think, these are your big cities. Seattle, Washington, right? Portland, Oregon. Just think of how many people that represents. Now, if, if 10% of all those people snap a gasket when this happens, and that's being conservative, 10% of them, think about the, the over, overstretch of all resources to try to contain that. It's almost unimaginable. What you almost have to do at that point is you set up martial law, and in some instances you let certain parts of the city just go. I mean, that's and and eventually it plays itself out because you can only be a parasite as long as there's a host, right? So parasites only get away with with, with being parasites as long as there's a host that has resources to take from. So eventually, the reason those scenarios don't turn into Mad Max and play themselves out is because the people that were victimized and easy to victimize no longer have anything for you to take, and then the, the parasite dies when there's no host. And that's that's the real dark view of that. And that's why I don't like being in the major urban areas because that is a possibility. That's one of the ways this could play out. It also could look a lot more like Greece or Argentina. A lot of this uh, civil unrest may not get the head of steam up that some people think it would because this is an armed country. You know, in, in, in England, when there were the London riots, people ordered bats from Amazon. In America, when there's a riot, people already have their baseball bats and their guns. And they'll only tolerate neighborhoods being torn apart for so long before they'll start taking people out. So, and then, well, how will that, and the, the answer is, see, we don't know any of this. And anybody tells you that they do, it's full of crap. So my view is the way that you combat this is you get yourself into a neighborhood or a community or you know a smaller rural area now. You do that now. If you are in a city and you have to work there, you find yourself as far out as you possibly can and still run your job. Try to get some telecommuting time, you know, even if it's one or two days a week, that'll make that, that move easier. But I don't even think you have to be you know, five hours away from a big city. I think if you're an hour away, it's a big help because that's not where the people that are going to cause the most problems are going to be. You have got to pay your debt off. You have got to pay attention to your investments. All I'm saying is pay attention. I'm not saying bail out of all the stocks right now or anything like that. I'm just saying pay attention. Know what you own how much of it you own, and where you would put it the day you decided it wasn't safe there anymore. Have the answer to that well in advance of needing to do it, and check and make sure you're going to be able to do it. So some people say, well, if I really thought it was that bad, I would just pay the interest and penalties and cash in my 401k and yank the money out. Well, I'm not saying go do that. In fact, I think that's probably a bad idea because there's the other scenarios where things kind of hold together for a lot longer, and maybe that's an advantage to having that money in that type of an account. But then go talk to HR and find out if that's even possible. Because there's some companies where as long as you're still working, you can't cash out your own 401k. They won't let you do it. 
It's it's a rather new thing from my understanding, but it, it's happened. I've had listeners send me documents from their own company saying it, and I didn't believe that you could even do that. But apparently you can. I've known that you can't get your vested portion if they're doing an employer match until you're vested. But there are companies now where, and this is because they're afraid. They're afraid of everybody bailing out of the market, right? So they're they're holding your 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 401k pension hostage, even though it's supposed to be a private pension that, that they administer, but you own. And and that's a sign of some pretty bad stuff in of itself. So make sure you can. I would also tell people that I think at, at this point, from the activities that I've seen like that, from where I've seen companies removing a cash option. So I've seen now 401ks with no cash option. There's a bond fund, and they'll say that's your safe money fund, but a bond is a debt instrument. Okay? So they, they don't even have, you know, basically a, a dollar fund or a, a, a money market fund in a lot of these accounts anymore. And if that's the case, definitely stop contra- contributing. Stop putting money in there. You have no safe haven in your own 401k. Stop putting money in it. I pretty much feel that because this is the pattern that all these people are doing, unless you're getting a huge match from your employer, right? I'm talking 50 cents on a dollar, a dollar on a dollar, something like that. That, that, that just stop it. Put the money, if you want it tax deferred, If you want that retirement-style investment uh, uh, vehicle, put your money in an IRA. At least you have total control over what you do with it at that point. You can invest your money in anything inside that IRA, any 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 legitimate uh, investment. Uh, you can buy a foreign stock. You can hold foreign currency. You can own gold and silver. I don't believe in holding physical gold and silver in IRAs. I think it's very stupid. You've taken the most anonymous and liquid form of money, and you've made it totally public and not liquid. So if you want to hold gold and silver, hold ETFs. You can hold ETFs in an IRA. So you can do anything you want in IRA. And a 401k, your employer sets it up to their advantage, and the, the management company sets it up to their advantage, and you get to pick from what they've picked for you. So, And I think that the way the companies are taking these stances now, like you can't just cash it out, uh, we're not going to give you a cat. I mean, it just... And I just see that even if you don't have those problems yet, you probably will. So you you, you make sure you know where the hell your money is going to go uh, the minute you feel it's not safe anymore and make sure that that plan is actionable. The next thing I'm going to tell you is please stop. If you are right now only saving money in tax-deferred retirement accounts, unless you are two to three years away from eligibility to get that money, if you're that close, you're going to be okay. I, I really think you're going to be okay. As long as you can control what the money does inside the vehicle. In other words, as long as there's a cash option in there. right? As long as there's a safe harbor in there. But if, if you are 30, 40 years old, something like that, and right now you're saving 10% of your pay, that's that's great that you're doing that. I'm, I'm happy for you. I think it should be more if you can make it more. But let's say you're saving 10%. If you're putting all 10% into an IRA and you're not building up any straight-up savings, that is the wrong answer right now. It really is. Um I, I would say if that's all you can save, no more than half of it should go tax-deferred. In fact, I wouldn't even be comfortable with that because if I think about that and a person with a pretty good income, like $100,000 a year, is doing 10%, that's only $10,000 a year. And that means they're only saving $5,000 in liquid cash if half of it's going into uh, you know some type, anything other. And I'm not saying you can't invest it. I'm not saying you can't have mutual funds or stocks or bonds or anything else. Just don't put it in a vehicle that locks it up for 30 years, like an IRA. Because you might need it. And I'm telling you, I think you're going to. Right now is a time to be saving money. 
to save as much money as you can. If there's a good investment and you think it'll pay off and you can actively manage it, that's fine. But you are about to see, and I, I said this last time and it was true, and I think it's going to be more true this time around, uh, the biggest sale in history. Things that you're looking at right now that you go, man, I'd like to have that, but that's so expensive. When this thing falls apart, for people positioned properly, you're going to be able to go and buy that stuff, especially used, but in still great shape, cheap. What do you, what do you think, in the middle of one of the greatest economic crises known to man, a big old uh, diesel pickup's going to sell for? When people can't afford, you know... $14 a gallon for fuel, which could be what it is. But if you need it for your homestead and pull in stuff and, and things like that, and you're going to burn a gallon of fuel a week in it, and you've got money, you don't care that the fuel's that high. You know, I mean, that's that, that's the way to start thinking now. Now, I realize everybody can't move out on the 10 or 20 acres. It's okay to have a half an acre. It really is. But get out of the urban areas and get out of the high-density suburbs. I think we're there now. Like I've always said, if you want to be in those places, that's fine. Make your way there. I, I think we're we're getting to a point where that's going to be a really bad place to be. And there's going to be a lot of hardship. And I don't think you need to be an isolationist either. I think we need small communities. Uh, I think that it's like Mel Tappan was ahead of his time is what I'm telling you, if you know of his work. You know, getting into good, tight communities, semi-rural areas, that type of thing, rather than the isolationist world of Idaho. Uh, I think some of those places might be some of the worst places to be. I hate to tell you that. If you're in a place where everybody's a gung-ho survivalist, um, it, it, a lot of times those people talk a good game, but they're not very prepared. And those are the people that will become very predatory. And I think you're better off dealing with people that are just of a practical preparedness nature because they're ready to deal with it. So in, in the right future, you're looking for that. I'm not trying to scare the hell out of you today. I'm just trying to be honest with you. Because I'm not I'm not telling you it's going to be as bad as Doomsday Preppers and their other stupid crap on TV is. I'm just telling you it ain't going to be good. And you need to be looking about in your life right now. If you have, you know, if you live in this country and you take care of yourself physically, there's no reason you can't live to be at least 80. A lot of people are making 90. There's a lot of people making 100. And you need to be thinking about looking after yourself for that long. Because let me tell you something, especially if you're my age, if you're 40, all that money that they promised you in Social Security, that's something I can tell you for a fact. If you're 40 years old or younger, if you think you're getting any of that money, I think you're sadly mistaken. I don't think it's possible. I don't think mathematically it works out. Um, and if it does, then the value of what you get is going to be crap. Um, Bernanke was asked by Ron Paul on the House floor, when we look ahead at Social Security and this huge burden, can you guarantee the value of the money that you'll be paying to the retirees? And Bernanke said, we can guarantee the money will be there. We can absolutely guarantee you there will be the money. We can print the money. And Ron Paul said, can you guarantee the value of it? And Bernanke's response was basically, well, of course not. See, and that's the game that they're playing. So they'll tell you, well, you're going to get $2,000 a month. But what's what's $2,000 a month going to be in in 25, 30 years when you're when you're getting it? 200 bucks? Do you, do you realize that's the game that they're playing? You you have got to take a long horizon look right now. You really do. The people that are going to do okay with Social Security are the ones that are most afraid, and they're the ones that need to shut up and stop being afraid because you're getting yours. The people that are 70 years old and living on it, 
you're okay. You're going to get your money. You are, you are the last beneficiaries of a Ponzi scheme. And it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It doesn't mean that you're not entitled to it. But I'm entitled to mine too. And I'm telling you right now, my generation is paying for the past generation. And we know our money is, is being spent faster than they collect it. And that it will not be there for us when we retire. And does that mean that we're all cruel and heartless and want all the old people to starve? No, but it does mean that we need to take action for ourselves to make sure we don't starve when we're the old people because it's not going to be there. The population of this country is about to start declining. All the people that think there's too many people in the world, you're about to get your wish and you ain't going to like it. You think you're going to like it, but you're not going to like it. When you have a top-heavy aged population and there's less young people there to support them, And that's another generation out yet before that really rears its head. People look at this country and they think, oh, there's still tons of people here. Now, there's tons of people here, but we're reproducing at a rate of about 1.63. And they'll give you all the class warfare crap about people on welfare squirting out babies, and there's some truth to it. That's why they use it for class warfare, but it doesn't change the overall number now, does it? What it actually does is as the population declines, you have a greater and greater number of that population inside the welfare system. So you have less people, but a higher percentage inside a support system that's also failing. You think those people are all just going to be real nice guys when it falls apart? When they say we're sorry? I mean, last year in Atlanta, people didn't get their food card stamp thing reloaded for one extra day. They screwed something up on a Friday, and the office was closed on a Monday for a holiday. I think it was Memorial Day, so it was right about a year ago. And they near tore the wall off the side of the building they were so upset because they had to go one day without their food stamp card being re recharged. What do you think they're going to do when they're told you just don't get it anymore? Or you're getting half of what you used to? You think they're just going to all be nice guys about it and say, okay? How long do you think, because of what they'll do, we'll try to keep propping it up? How much worse will that make the problem? Where do you want to be when all this happens? That's what I want to know from you. Where do you want to be? I mean, some people think they're just going to leave the country, and there could be some places that might be okay to go, but I, I don't think that's realistic for most people. My personal view is that right now is a good time to get into states that are at least partially doing it right. I would say that's the Dakotas. It's probably Idaho. Just be careful who you associate with because some of those people are really great, awesome people. And some of those are the ones that they warn you about. Okay, um, But, yeah, they've got their act together financially. New Hampshire is stellar. Um, but it's surrounded by a bunch of dumbasses. I mean, really, you look at what, like... Connecticut and Massachusetts and Rhode Island are doing economically. And, you know, all I say is have your security in place, New Hampshire. But, but, but they're doing things right. Or they're doing things better than anybody else. Texas, Texas is damn solid. Part of why we're, we're buying another place there. Right? I mean, that's, that's part of why we're going there. Now, Texas does some dumb crap too. Uh, they just had today, I got an email. A guy was getting burglarized. There were people trying to break into his house. He fired a shot, but he didn't want to kill him if he didn't have to. So he fired a shot into the ground, chased him away. The police came and arrested him. Now, here's the thing. With the Castle Doctrine in Texas, if this guy would have shot center mass and laid that dude out and killed him, right, he would have probably been fine. If he would have told the cop, I tried to shoot him, but I missed, he probably would have been fined. Or fine, not fined, fine, 
right? That'd be dangerous, though, because they want to say, oh, it's attempted murder. You didn't have to kill him because he didn't do anything because you chased him away, and that means that you didn't, you know, I mean, it's a slippery slope there. So Texas does stupid crap all the time. But overall, economically and from a tax standpoint and from a mostly from a liberty standpoint, pretty solid. Um, and, and I mean, these are some places I would look right now. Uh, and, and somebody will say, well, what about my state? What about this state? I, you know, I, I don't know. Here's what I'm going to tell you, though. What you need to be really evaluating is not too high of a population density around you, good standing moral people around you that are willing to do what's necessary when things are wrong and, and willing to, have to to retain their morality. So that's more of an individual thing. You have to evaluate the place that, and the people around there for yourself before you make a decision. I think that another thing that you have to, to, to really look at, and it's probably the most important one, if systems begin to fail or, let's say, falter, Okay, the system doesn't have to fail to have problems. All it has to do is falter. So if the system of distribution of goods and services is running at 70% of its current efficiency, we have a lot of problems from the 30% that's lacking. All right. So what you need to be looking at then is what resources are there here? What resources are there on my own property and surrounding property that we would call public property, unused property? So when I was in Vegas, for instance, for SHOT Show, I looked around there and went, this place, I don't care if you're in the suburbs there, I don't care if you're out in the desert a bit, I don't, you're screwed. There are hardly any resources in that place. There's hardly any water, there's no good soil, there's, there's not a lot of game to hunt. Now, there's people that are good desert survivalists that can make it in a desert and show you there's tons of stuff out there, but that ain't you likely. If it is, you're probably not listening to this. You're off in a desert right now eating a lizard and making a fire with a cactus piece of wood, cactus wood. Okay? Um, and that is a very harsh environment. It's also a very harsh environment. This is one of the things I don't like about Texas. What happens when the grid goes down in the winter? You chop wood. You burn wood. You stay warm enough to stay alive. What happens when it goes down in the, in the summer in a place like Las Vegas or Texas or South Florida? I mean, the, the structures and the buildings that we have today are not designed to remain cool. They're designed to be cooled. And that's something that you have to really look at as well. So I'm not saying go compound up. What I'm saying is it is, it is absolutely at this point time to make the move towards self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And to be very smart about all your decisions and all your choices. And if you do that, I'm still actually quite optimistic. But I think for the people that don't, the pain and suffering is going to be pretty bad. And I'm not always talking about like, you know, and I, I hate preppers that are assholes. I really do. I hate the ones that are like, they'll find out when they're all dying. They put idiots like that on Doomsday Preppers. And you're like, oh my God, you're such an idiot. And I don't think it has to be that to be really Suffering. There's a lot of people in this country suffering right now. What do you think led to the Occupy movement? Do you think it was? Do you really think it's just a bunch of spoiled college kids that that, that don't like having some rules or having to pay back the money they owe? What do you think made? I mean, if you if you actually pay attention to what really went on there, you see a lot of guys that are you know. There was one guy there that was he served like 15 years in the military. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, this is, and he showed a picture, this is what my hometown looks like now. And it was just like, it looked like a Depression-era picture of a main street of town where all the businesses were closed. 
he's like, I don't, I don't know if everything that these people here are, are wanting is is good, but I know that something something is really wrong when things are like this. I mean, there is so much that can go wrong, and you still think the system's basically working, and that means there's still opportunity for people to work within and outside of the system for themselves. And all I'm saying today is position yourself well. Position yourself well, economically and geographically, and pay attention, keep your eyes open. I think that, along with some practical preparedness, is all that we really need to do to do okay when these times come to bear. And again, I can't, I wish I could tell you it will be June of 2016, and here's what will happen, and here's what it will look like. But I can't, and I'm not about to lie to you about that. So just practice the things that we talk about all the time. Good common sense. Eat what you store, store what you eat, food storage. Set a goal for yourself for some time that you could go without without any trips to the grocery store at all. If it's 90 days, fine, get there. If it's six months, so much the better, get there. If it's a year, awesome. And you know, and as you start to go in those longer timelines, you're going to have to look at things like Mountain House and providing pantry and shelf reliance and all. Because doing eat we store and store eat that far out, very, very difficult. But then learn how to use these foods. Open the freaking can of the pork chops. Rehydrate them. Have a barbecue. They're good. Learn how to use the foods. You know? Um, really, though, thinking is the most important thing you're going to have to do going forward. Work on your skill set, your knowledge base. Keep listening to TSP. Get involved with our form. Get involved with other forms. And, and realize that you don't have to do everything. You know, people are always on me. Why don't you get a ham license? Because it's not my thing, you know? I've got all these things that I'm doing, all these things that I'm, I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm doing and, and, and advancing my, my own knowledge and skills and in getting better and better at because when this thing falls apart, that's what I'm going to do. That's going to be my contribution. And I don't plan on being an island. Right? I plan on having other people involved to get through whatever we're dealing with, wherever we're at. And communications, frankly, can fall to somebody else. At least that form of it. At least being an expert in that form of it. You know, and, and it, it would also predispose that, well, if you don't have that, you're screwed. If you don't have this, you're screwed. So take whatever aspects of, 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 of preparedness are best suited to you and make them your own. But please, please try to figure out how you can get yourself out of some of these high-density situations. I mean, if you need more motivation, and I know some of you can't right now, but plan for it. Plan for it. Don't think there's no time, but don't pretend there's all the time in the world either. right? But for some of you that are going, I don't know about this, all I want you to do, stand at the front door of your house and imagine that all of the houses around you are experiencing economic uh, problems in the home and don't know where they're going to eat tonight, and based on your knowledge of the people that you live around, what do you think they would do? How do you think they would act? And if you think, holy crap, this would suck, then it's probably time to find another place to be. Because that potential reality is real. It's potential. It's not guaranteed. I'm not promising you what's going to happen. I'm not saying, you better do it or else. I'm telling you this is the potential that we have set up right now. I mean, because here's the other possible outcome. They make this big change. The way they did in the 70s, the way they did in the 60s, the way they did in the 30s, the way they did in 1913. They make this big currency shift. They revalue the, the dollar. We have problems, but they're you know similar to the 1930s or similar to the 1970s. We get through it, and they get the ship 
sailing one more time. It's possible. I'm not going to tell you it's impossible. I'm going to tell you it's highly improbable. But what we need to be prepared for is any of these scenarios, from the very worst to the very best. And we need to be improving the quality of our lives now, and we just need to reestablish the mentality that our grandparents and great-grandparents had and reinstill that in our future generation. Because, folks, let me tell you something. A lot of us that are in our 20s to 30s, 40s right now, we're in pretty good health. We're in pretty good shape. We can do a lot of stuff, and we feel like I'll take care of myself. But those kids, just like you have to be there for your elderly parents, they're going to need to be there for you. Teach them well. Because you're going to need them. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd.